also with attribution issues, uh, you know, iOS 14, GDPR, Google, of course, moving everything to first party cookies, it makes it a lot harder to track those conversions, especially if they're coming through word of mouth or other channels, which also makes the apparent cost of conversion go up. For a direct consumer, this is still very difficult, very challenging, but it's nearly impossible for B2B, especially e-com, because that adds an extra level of referral. Because when you work with referral partners, let's say like the sock company, Hoop Swag, who does the personalized socks for people's faces that they were doing mostly D to C, their relationships are now driven with brands that like the Humane Society or the MBA or other partnerships where they're doing things in tandem. That's much harder to track the conversion efforts of working with partners. And the same is true with affiliates. So the, the blessing of direct-to-consumer, being able to boost the posts of your top customers creates a huge, huge opportunity, but it's also a tracking nightmare. And I think it's more difficult for the big brands because they have a lot of internal sort of bureaucratic inertia. Stanley, so hello everyone and uh, welcome. Hello. And my face is, is, you see my face really big here too, for some reason? Yes, yes, <laughs> you're, you're too, uh, I think it has to do with the camera. I think uh, what we can do is to play around with uh, with this. I'll, I'll be the VJ today because Flo is uh, uh, on vacation. He's actually playing at some festival. He's a musician as well, our, our video guy. So, uh, yeah. Good stuff today. So, Dean, why don't you tell us a bit about how you've uh, got uh, into the e-commerce space at the very beginning? Yeah. So, so just first of all, thank you, thank you for having me on, and great to great to meet you both, Valentin and Dennis. Um, so, my name is Dean Mackowie. I'm I'm currently the director for international e-commerce strategy for the Stanley Black and Decker company. Um, I started off my career. Wow. It's really, really long ago. I think I started uh, back in the old school days. I don't know if any of you remember coding in Turbo Pascal um, <laughs> years and years and years ago. I, I started doing that um, when I was at school. So I always had an affinity for computers. And then my, my sort of career has wound its way through the early days of online shopping back in um, my home country of South Africa. Um, really about the turn of the century, I was involved in quite a bit of stuff on home shopping there, um, went into analytics, and then spent quite a bit of time building a commercial career, really, with companies like Nestle um, and uh, Coca-Cola. Um, I also spent a brief stint um, with MasterCard, which really was really about analytics. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I made the move to Europe. I wanted to be a bit more central. Um, so then, then I came through and um, joined the Kellogg Company to lead their commercial um, e-commerce operations in Europe. Um, so I spent some time with them. And then uh, the opportunity came up about a year and a half ago um, to join the Stanley Black & Decker Company um, to head up their international e-commerce strategy um, team. Good stuff. So you, you had quite an adventure and you had a, a, a variety of experiences uh, uh, 
so far. So one uh, one question that I uh, that I uh, wanna address to both of you is how do you how do you see the current uh, uh, e-commerce landscape? So from from your perspective, what's uh, what's exciting and what's uh, let's say frightening uh, you if you look at the market right now? Yeah, shall I jump in first here? Um, so as, as as a big brand for us, I think what is what is uh, what we're seeing at the moment is we've just come off a very good prime day. We've had some of the best um, numbers that we had on on our on our prime day. That we believe is driven by a lot more price sensitive customers. So I think with the cost of living um, rising, a lot of shoppers are taking the opportunity to spend um, on prime day and that because it really offers great deals. Um, what's concerning us a, a bit at the moment, the moment, and it's probably less concern, but just adjusting, is as a business, we have an omni-channel business, which, which, which is big. Um, and then we have our pure play e-commerce businesses. And I think for us, I think there, there's two quite different dynamics going on. So in our, in our omni-channel business, the contribution from e-com is reducing. Um, versus last year. So it's really about messaging to the, the broader business that this is normal, this is just an adjustment as people go back to stores. Um, and then for our e-commerce business, it continues to grow. We, we're seeing very positive growth out of the likes of Amazon. Um, and what we're, what we're reviewing as, as we go forward is how deep we're into D2C. Um, and really, you guys will know as well as I do, some of the costs of acquisition have climbed quite a lot over the last um, last sort of 12 to 18 months. So for us, it's, it's about looking at that and saying, um, for our categories, the cost of acquisition um, and what that P&L looks like, um, we, we've got to be quite judicious about rolling out. You know, it's going to cost us quite a lot to acquire those shoppers, and especially for a business like ours, in our category, you don't wake up on, on, on Friday morning today and suddenly decide, oh, I need a new drill. It, it takes you a good lot, lots of research to do that. Um, so for us, that, that life cycle of acquiring that customer and converting them is quite a bit longer than the than other categories. So we need to spend quite a bit on, on always on marketing and customer acquisition before we actually make a sale. So what I'm hearing is uh, that uh, you, 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 this is basically a recurring theme. It's uh, around the customer acquisition costs going up and uh, yeah. more competition uh, in this landscape. Dennis, what about yourself? So what's, uh, what's exciting and what's frightening you if you look at the current market conditions? I agree with everything Dean's saying. Bigger brands, what's exciting is that there's new channels that they can leverage their existing brand awareness to do really well in like TikTok, right? I have the number one best-selling book in social media. It happens to be on TikTok and it's UGC. Everything we see, the shift, which is exciting and scary is that UGC, which is really just another word for word of mouth or referrals or reviews or customers that already love you. If they already know about Black & Decker, then we can leverage Instagram, TikTok, these other social media channels but the key is it's not the creative that is made by the brand itself. It's UGC, but harnessed at scale and turned into ads. For example, the number one thing working on TikTok right now is Spark ads. 
which is literally boosting someone else's post. We look at Escape Fitness, which is a global manufacturer of equipment, and they were making traditional brochure-driven, like brand, PR agency, ad agency-driven content. And instead, they're working with influencers, people who are very well-known in the fitness community in different areas or Olympic weightlifters, gold medalists, and leveraging their content so that they can leverage their the audiences of those particular people. That's a challenge because you have the like that it, there's it's much more difficult for big brands to be able to work with the larger group of people doing the creatives because they don't have the infrastructure to typically or the the way they don't really think about content in this way right because the brand police will say this is not how we create content or they don't know how to work with influencers and there's also as dean said the cost of traffic is going up also with attribution issues you know ios 14 gdpr Google, of course, moving everything to first-party cookies, it makes it a lot harder to track those conversions, especially if they're coming through word of mouth or other channels, which also makes the apparent cost of conversion go up. For a direct-to-consumer, this is still very difficult, very challenging, but it's nearly impossible for B2B, especially in e-com, because that adds an extra level of referral, because when you work with referral partners, let's say like the sock company, Hoop Swag, who does the personalized socks for people's faces that they were doing mostly D to C, their relationships are now driven with brands that like the Humane Society or the MBA or other partnerships where they're doing things in tandem. That's much harder to track the conversion efforts of working with partners. And the same is true with affiliates. So the, the blessing of direct-to-consumer, being able to boost the posts of your top customers creates a huge, huge opportunity, but it's also a tracking nightmare. And I think it's more difficult for the big brands because they have a lot of internal sort of bureaucratic inertia. So I think it's, it, it's something that the smaller brands are taking advantage of, which is what we typically see when there's a shift in marketing. But I'm curious to see what happens next. Yeah, Dennis, I think there's, you, you make an interesting point. We've sort of done... Uh, um, it's quite interesting. We've done some great work with Naver in, in Korea, um, re really on live streaming, live shopping. It's it's such a great format when you have somebody who can authentically, um, we used an influencer there just who can authentically talk about your brand, um, especially in our categories, being able to do, get more authentic content is, is so much more valuable because you can imagine drills, chainsaws, you know, sort of, equipment that you'd use use to do your DIY, it makes a lot more sense when there's somebody there who has actually got an existing stream of of, of content there. Um, so absolutely second the authentic content, but also second the second the comments about big brand um, brand guidelines. Um, when you're pushing out as much content as we do, we're focused on a lot of quantity. Um, so doing these smaller things um, um, comparatively is a lot harder for brands to get their head around. How do you, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please. Uh, I, I was about to, 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 to tackle the issue of uh, organizational inertia. It's a topic that it's uh, very dear to me. Not that I'm uh, happy about it, but I wanted to ask Dean about uh, this. You, you've mentioned it, uh, Dennis, and I'm also uh, interested about the agility factor and, and how the things are moving within your uh, within your organization, and what how do you see this uh, 
challenge moving forward as right now the 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 whole arena is changing really really fast and you need to adapt to new channels like uh, Danny said about TikTok allocating budgets more in a more more uh, agile way yeah i find it challenging cuz we've worked with folks like Nike and Starbucks and the Golden State Warriors and other bigger brands typically have tight brand control because they have an internal PR agency they have a bunch of agencies that are working together they have an AOR and often the big brands they're organized by function so there's you know SEO and PPC and all these different silos and they're not organized by customer niche and what happens when you have a lot of influencers and a lot of people that are micro famous in their particular communities is you have niche driven content so that that requires organizing around the customer as opposed to organizing around you know email and SEO and landing pages and that kind of thing so i think that's that's what's creating the challenge yeah what do you see yeah i i i think dennis has hit hit, hit the nail on the head there hasn't he um, you know we we have an in-house content studio so we we produce um, some of our own, uh, well, most of our own video. Um, we produce a lot of a lot, a lot of our own content, but it is really focused on on functional rather than customer specific. I think, you know, a lot of businesses like like ours are really geared for selling a large number of products to a small group of customers, um, and so focusing on individual individual niches is really a lot harder for us. Um, and but part of our job as 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 e-commerce team um, leaders is to get the business to think more customer centric, get more um, re really ingrained in what the customer wants. Because pushing out content is a process, but personalizing it is is really what counts. If you look at it, if you look at our business, we've got two really um, diverse brands. We've got the Black and Decker brand, which is really our DIY brand. Um, and, and that really, when you're doing content, you're doing, you know, I, I like to categorize it as um, information, education, and inspiration. You're trying to get people to do DIY in their home. Um, you contrast that with a brand like DeWalt, which is really a professional tradesperson brand. Um, the content has to be very, very different there. It's education and information. But it's also there a lot of demonstration. You've got to demonstrate exactly what this product does um, for the people to buy it. So, you know, organizing around consumers and, and the sort of end users of your product intrinsically makes sense. Um, it's a bit harder to do at scale, um, and it's a journey for teams to get there. Uh, I, I can uh, I can uh, ask you something because you've uh, you've uh, raised this. Uh, to, to my interest, so you you've said about uh, making uh, making people uh, making the company more customer centric, and uh, uh, for for me it's important. How what are the metrics? How the company is actually uh, measuring, let's say, the level of customer centricity? Because it's uh, it's becoming uh, so clear that customer centricity would uh, uh, would would be. Uh, it's it's a topic which is hot, let's say it's becoming a buzzword. However, when it when it comes to how you measure it, you see a lot of uh, misalignment between the departments. You see that the KPIs are basically I don't know one silo has their own KPIs, one silo has another KPI, and at the end of the day, 
the company journey is like this while the customer journey is being neglected. So I wanted to, to yeah, address yeah. this topic with you uh, over here. Yeah, so I, I think it's, it's, it's a journey, it's not a, it's not a sprint. Um, so what I mean by that is, is often what I say when I describe e-commerce is I say that e-commerce really shines a light on any processes or um, things in your business that you haven't really got a great handle on. Um, so if you don't have a clear persona um, for each and every, every brand and each and every shopper that you're going after, um, it's quite hard to therefore measure that because you're not sure exactly what you're measuring and why you're measuring and what the outcome is you're looking for. So I think what we're, what we're doing is we're, we're tightening up on things like what are our personas, who are we actually talking to, who is our target customer that we really want to do. And then what we're doing is we're looking at various metrics and starting, you know, just re really look at it from a sequencing type approach. So we're we're focusing very much on traffic on our, on, on our websites and some of our socials, just ready to make sure that are we getting the right traffic in and the right sort of qualified traffic. Um, and then what we're, we're looking to develop is a sort of proxy customer lifetime value ready because um, that helps us focus the business and focus the, the resources. Um, you know, if you think of the DIY type of business, it's, it's, a, it's a great business. We all think about things like, like doing a bit of uh, DIY, but the reality is you're only going to buy a drill once every three years um, or when it breaks. Um, you know, they, they really, the, 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 shopping, the shopping lifetime journey there is quite long and it's more about getting people into a re repertoire. And, um, you know, the tradesperson has, he has lots of jobs to do and he's got to build construction site. He's got to work on the construction site um, and, and really go after that. So there we're looking at the customer lifetime value because the cost of acquisition may be extremely high for the tradesperson, but so is the spend. You know, the spend for a, for a, for a tradesperson, that they can spend uh, 700 to 1,000 euros on a drill um, and they will stick with your drill because of the battery um, being unique to the drill, they will stick to that drill for four or five years. So they may buy five, six drills in, 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 in five years. So the cost of acquisition or that could be 100, 150 euro might be well worth it. And I think uh, Julian just piped up there, you know, great comment, people want solutions. And, and that's very much what uh, we're also trying to move the business to, to is, is, not not for the drills, but for the holes and for the solutions. The broader the broader solution is really what everybody's looking for. So, is it software? Is it um, hardware? Or is it content? And it's it's moving towards being a combination of all of those. Yeah, uh, I, I I also wanted to add something uh, because I'm completely obsessed about the customer lifetime value. As you might know, we we okay. launched them. Uh, a whole CVO Academy also have Dennis there as an instructor and uh, a lot of uh, book authors uh, and uh, heavy hitters in this space. Uh, I wanted to ask you something uh, regarding the, the customer segmentation. Are you using RFM by any chance or what kind of uh, type of segments are you, are you using when you want to measure the yeah. customer value? 
Good, good question. Primarily RFM, but I think we also, one, one of the challenges for us is that if you think about our, our, our business and our product range um, and the usage of products, there are niche specific tools. So yeah. there's certain brands we have for, for um, auto manufacturers. There's certain brands that we have for um, people who do carpentry. And sometimes those overlap. So there's a big, what we call demand architecture that we're, we're sitting there and we're building behind that to stitch together all of this across the, across, yeah, across these brands through the CDP to, to actually make sure that we know what's going on. Um, but really, our, our RFM would, would be the primary method we're using. Um, but you need to do it across the multiple brands because you'll, you'll have somebody registering on one of our sites, but they'll register across any one of the 20 brands we have. That's right, yeah. Um, and uh, I, uh, I also wanted to add something regarding the, the RFM we've been seeing uh, uh, lately that... Uh, as the ROIS is going down, we, we made the, uh, a few experiments by leveraging RFM to build lookalike audiences. I don't know if you've uh, played around with this. I had multiple conversations with Dennis around uh, leveraging other ways to target, to the, besides the creative, besides the offer and the message, it's, uh, mm. it's about the target itself. And I don't know if, you've, uh, if you have uh, been playing with this type of uh, lookalike audiences built on top of RFM segments so that you generate uh, better, uh, better uh, customers. Yeah, well, well that's, that's effectively what we have to do. You know, if you think about our, our, our type of portfolio and the, and the length of time that it takes between, um, between purchase occasions, um, you know, lookalike audiences were one of the best weighted ways to do it. And um, we've also got a very, very good idea of sequencing um, as well, because um, in, in, a, in a brand like ours, if you've bought a drill, you're not going to buy it again. But what else are you going to buy that's adjacent to it? Um, so, so we're trying to look, look at that behavior as well. Dennis, what's, uh, what's your take on... Uh this uh, this direction on uh, leveraging lookalike audiences have you seen this uh, do, do you think this is going to become a norm in the uh, in the future because it's uh, highly and let me put you on the screen i'm playing a bit yeah right so uh, here we are uh, I, I was asking you dennis if yeah. you think in the future the norm would be to to have this type of uh, uh, bi-directional uh, approach on segmentation. On one end, you have the customer behavior. On the other end, you have the product assortment, like what, what he bought and when, when is the highest yeah. uh, propensity to buy again. Yeah. There's a mistake that people are making with lookalike audiences or RFM. RFM first is based on the transactions that customers have. So, of course, you want to get more customers who are spending more money more frequently with you. But if you look at the nature of creating content, especially like how-to content, you know, Black & Decker will maybe for the, for the consumer brand, they're looking at, you know, here's, here's a contractor or here's somebody in their garage working on something. Of course, you, you're going to model to find other people that are like that and create content that are like that and niche out like we talked about. But the bigger piece is word of mouth. So when you create a great brand, other people talk about that and you can't necessarily track that. You know, a lookalike audience is to say, find other people that have taken this kind of action that are similar, find other people that are similar, 
to these other people who are in these particular RFM clusters, right? Maybe there's like for Escape Fitness, there are where they sell the fitness equipment. There are hotels and there are universities that buy bulk equipment, right? They buy lots and lots of dumbbells opposed to one consumer that is buying just for their gym. A lookalike audience will say, find other people that are also in that kind of situation. They're building a new facility, but that misses the point of the referral power that is not going to be captured with lookalikes. A lookalike audience is nothing more than the same. It's, it's the exact, the, the algorithm behind lookalikes is the exact same behind, you know, Amazon on people who bought this also bought that. It's the same algorithm on TikTok where people who watch this silly video are also going to see this kind of video. It's the same one on YouTube where they have recommended videos. It's the same thing on Google now with PAA, right? People who search for this are also searching for this kind of thing. So lookalikes are not only ad-driven targeting. Lookalikes are the same filter, are, it's the same algorithm of if there's more content than you could ever possibly consume, how do I show on Facebook and the newsfeed what's going to be next? So lookalike audiences are already inherently built into social media and built into any algorithm-driven net, network where it's free to participate, but it's ad-supported by folks like us. And so it, it is true. R RFM has been around since even before the day, days of direct mail. But I think using RFM and relying upon lookalikes, and lookalikes are already there, so it's not like we have to leverage them. Uh, even if you do broad targeting, for example, on Facebook, it has lookalikes already built in. So I think the issue is further, not, not you know, how are lookalikes and RFM built together, but how do I leverage building a brand that tracks engagement and has engagement that leads to a sale, right? And, that, and RFM is all based on a particular user. That same user, I'm trying to track their click stream. I'm trying to track their email, their you know first party data, their text messages, all the way through to a sale. But what happens if that user is working in their garage on some new you know cabinet or whatever it is, and then they tell their other friends, and those friends participate? That's not captured in RFM, is it? The referral power is actually more valuable, I would argue, in most cases than that direct consumer journey. Most companies will treat that as brand messaging and the power of the brand and reputation and, you know, net promoter score. And those are great. But there's there's e-com mostly, which is around, you know, direct transactional sales. And then there's big brand, you know, Super Bowl ads, big TV commercials. But in the middle, mm -hmm. there's a huge gap where there's knowledge, where they're sharing how to do something, where there's working with influencers. And I think that's the biggest gap, right? Connecting these brand people that are measured on how many impressions they have or how many followers they have, or you know, general sentiment versus down here, individual transactions. There, there's a big gap in the middle, and I don't think general RFM or lookalikes are gonna tackle that. It's, it, it's also about the creative, right? I mean, it's, uh, it, it's having compelling messages according to the data that you, you, you have at your disposal, because right now, without being relevant, it doesn't matter how how many times you you push a message in front of a uh, of a person on social media? So despite the channel, I think relevancy trumps everything. It's is this of interest to me? If it's not, then screw that. I'm going to scroll down. It always is a creative issue, but that doesn't really address the real question. Because when you look at the back to the original question, the KPIs, mm. the creative teams or video teams or what or PR teams have is quantity driven. How many posts? Right. You look at the social media. Yeah. Teams, how many Fresh. posts do we have? I want to know well, how about the quality of the post and does it lead to a sale? Does it 
like we, we set up the social analytics for Red Bull across 90 countries. And originally it was like, how many posts, how many, and the, the marketing managers, their compensation was based on the relative scoring against all the other countries on, you know, mm -hmm. the events they had, how many likes, how many comments. We'd had this weighted engagement score where comments are worth more than likes and, you know, video views on YouTube versus likes on Facebook versus whatever it was. And that was a great first step. But how do you tie that into direct sales? How do you tie mm. that into so – there's a difference between having a million people each engage with you one time versus 10,000 people each engage with you 100 times, right? The, the depth of the relationship. I'd rather have fewer people who are engaging more, who are like more hardcore customers than just like millions of views, right? How do you measure that? Most content teams don't know how to do that. Yeah. And, and, and this is, you know, this is the, the interesting thing, certainly with our business, Dennis, is really that, that's why we, we, we focus quite a bit on that professional customer, because it's a lot easier to track them, um, although it's harder on the acquisition side. But, but, the, but the value of them, you can get a few, a few of them and they will spend $20,000, $30,000 a year in tools. Um, and, and you just can't match that with, with the DIY customer. It just takes a much longer time and you need to spend a lot more money to get there overall with, on, on a couple of different channels. And that means you, you have to, to segment them uh, besides based on RFM, based on the, the, the type of product that they are uh, uh, buying. And also I think an important parameter over here, it's the untapped potential. So basically, it's the the share of wallet. What, how much yeah. you could have uh, you could have generated from a customer from this cluster? And basically, that's that's setting uh, targets. Let's say yeah. for 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 this type of uh, yeah. So, so one of the sort of breaks for us, Valentin, is that we sort of go, how how often do you use your tools? Do you use them x many hours a year or x many hours per week? Um, because that helps us differentiate from a segmentation point of view what type of customer you are and, and the value that you are to the business. Um, but then it is about finding all those specific niches because you, you want the person to, to buy across the brand and buy across the range. And, you know, we'll, we'll have, have many, many different SKUs for specific jobs. So getting, getting people to understand what that specific tool is and what it does and how it adds value to them is critically important to increase their, increase their value to us. The, the, talking about the value uh, here, Dean, I wanted to ask you something regarding the, um, the mentality around the customer lifetime value. Because uh, we, we are talking about customer lifetime value optimization, which of course it's a process. It, uh, you, you have to be aware about three, the three pillars of customer value optimization, which means uh, what you sell the products, what you say the marketing and what you do the customer experience. But uh, I, I wanted to ask you, how are you making sure that the customer gets the value? And uh, um, because we, without, without checking if you're actually using the tools that you're selling and if you're satisfied about them, there's no repeat uh, purchase from that person. There's no amplification, no referral, no nothing. Because if you're pissed off because, yeah, I bought this and I don't even know how to use it or whatever, 
then there, you, you can't expect retention from such a customer experience, right? No, 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 you can't. And I think, yeah, I, I think this is once again about a journey, journey for us as a business. Um, when, when you talk to, to businesses about things like customer lifetime value, especially, the especially from a financial perspective, it can seem quite abstract. Um, because people are, are looking at this from the point of view of a short-term sale um, and, and a short-term sort of uh, um, transactional lens rather than a lifetime value lens. And I, I think it's, it, it's a real journey for, for, for businesses like ours to start saying, this customer is really valuable. Let's focus on, the, on, on, on these, these customers who offer a lot more to us. We're, we're, we're not there yet. We're trying to move towards that um, with a combination of both tech and various insights part, part, parts of it. But it but really, really is a journey to, to get the business to reorientate around that um, because you're, you're, you're chasing numbers and you're chasing targets and Wall Street's beckoning. And, and when, when you talk about customer lifetime value and in our business, customer lifetime value can stretch quite a long time. You know, you, some of those trades guys have got tools from 20 years ago that um, they still have at home. Um, so it's quite, quite, uh, it's quite a challenge for businesses like ours to move on that. Yeah, and and to also monitor it properly, right? So where you, where you yes. where you put the the the, the threshold. Uh, I have a question for you, uh, Dennis, uh, regarding the. Uh, changing gears a bit and moving away from the customer centricity and customer uh, lifetime value. What do you think? Where do you think the market is going when it uh, when it comes to acquisition? So we've been uh, we've we've been seeing that uh, TikTok is uh, getting it uh, right. We've been seeing that uh, TikTok wanted to go even more in depth in e-commerce in the UK, and then they they decided, okay, scrap that. How do you see customer acquisition uh, uh, in e-commerce in the future? And uh, I have the same uh, question for for you, Dean. Well, I'm hoping Dennis has got a crystal ball because I'm doing budgets for next year, and it's quite hard. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I have been surprised in the last year when TikTok became the number one visited website on the planet ahead of Google. That took me by surprise. And then in the last couple of weeks, in younger demographics, we've seen research that shows that more young adults, when they are searching, they're searching more on TikTok than they are on Google. And what that says to me is that the education of the consumer is what precedes the, the sale, which we've always known. And, and those of us that are in e-com and we rely upon our brand search terms, rely upon a, a lot of high intent terms, are now realizing that those are drying up, not because the cost of traffic necessarily is going up or you know, Google is making our ads go up or something like that, but because the, the consumers are, they're buying based on what their friends are doing and they're doing searches within the social networks. That's something that we never saw on Facebook. I remember having meetings with Facebook, the head of growth and other folks where we said that search box at the top, there were no searches ever occurring there because it was purely navigational. You type in a friend's name, you type in a location. You wouldn't type in, you know, best power drill into that search box, but mm. you would do that on TikTok. So what that means is that discovery and acquisition actually can occur farther upstream. 
So most brands, they don't have the, in, they're not producing informational how-to like YouTube channels, you know, going behind the scenes and like, uh, you know, the, the reality TV kinds of things or like podcasts. Escape Fitness, the example I re referenced earlier, they're doing that. So instead of their team trying to cover every single niche, they're interviewing these other people. They're getting on podcasts. They're speaking at these other conferences and reaching out and building relationships with professional football teams, with people that are designing a new gym. And how often does that happen? Someone opens a new gym and they need to buy equipment. They're going to buy $100,000, $200,000 worth of equipment, but there's not a lot of data in RFM to be able to determine when that event happens. But when someone makes that purchase, that's a lot of money, right? Just like someone buying a house, that's a lot of money. So the, the acquisition is contingent more upon making sure that your content is in the consideration set when people are making that decision, even when you don't have survey data, you don't have their email address and phone number yet. You don't, you can't rely upon the luxury of having this kind of data to make acquisition. And that's made brand it's made very difficult for the bigger brands. And especially the higher the ticket is, the higher value the customer is often the less data you have. So why we, we can talk theoretically about, you know, what kinds of things we might do on, on what they've told us. In a lot of these cases, there's not data to determine that. So what are you going to do? You, the only way to, I guess, make data is to build content with other people who already have those existing communities. That's why I love looking at Escape Fitness, where their CEO, instead of just relying upon brochures, and here's, you know, every year, here's our new product line coming out, and relying upon suppliers and partners that are by, you know, here's hotels or, or here's geographical partners, they're actually working with the the top i hate to say influencers i guess the new word is creator but they're working with these people who then they know their community they know the content they're producing stuff that is that has grown you know they're based to 100,000 1 million followers and leveraging all of these partner relationships so i think acquisition now is shifting towards how do you co-create content that's so good it doesn't look like an advertisement but it still causes people to say you know, I'm willing to pay a, a 3x premium for Escape Fitness versus something I might buy on Amazon because I trust that person who runs the community, who's co-created content in a non-sponsored way, right? Because everyone can tell it's an infomercial when it's sponsored content, but it's actually genuine, legitimate content. We did this for the Golden State Warriors, which is the basketball team that just won the championship. And we did stuff with like Buffalo Wild Wings or not Buffalo Wild Wings, which chicken wing chain was it we did it with? And originally, every year, they would give us creatives that were obviously commercials. And then we had to run those in the stadium. We ran that in our email. We ran it on social. We ran it on all these different places. It didn't work. It didn't engage because it didn't feel like it was co-created content. And then we started creating videos with the cheerleaders, with the announcers, with some of the players, asking them you know, what their favorite flavor was or things that was, it was obviously co-created and the, the retail sales that we had, the store visits, all, all of those things went up. And we did that with the other direct consumer, even e-com related brands that were typically sponsors or partners with the sports team and co-created content. So now we have to create content at scale, but together with these other partners so it doesn't look like an ad. The whole shift to acquisition is creating content that doesn't look like ads. So what is the exact opposite of an ad? It's not obviously promotional. It has informational content. It's not filmed in what's obviously a commercial. It's filmed selfie style mobile, which most yeah. 
won't do. The brand police will say, no, we can't do that. It's using Correct. other people that aren't famous. Yeah. That's Correct. huge production. Yeah. Most brands won't do that. So what, what I'm hearing from you, Dennis, because that was a lot to, 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 to get in. Uh, the, the, the direction is mainly around the migrating to, to content production. So outsourcing your content to uh, creators that will make you make, make your content not look like an ad, not so your no, content. Not even that. I mean, outsourcing is like, okay, instead of just paying a couple agencies. Outsourcing in the sense of not, not producing uh, in your company, making people produce the content in an organic, natural way so, so that you can promote stories which are there. It's co-creating content. That's the key. Otherwise, you might as well just pay a whole bunch of influencers to make obviously promotional content, which is what's happening right now. So the top brands on TikTok and e-com that are making money, they are paying other influencers to make testimonial like or, you know, uh, nature's wild berry, right? You take this berry and anything you, you eat, you eat a lemon. After that, it tastes sweet. Everything for the next 30 minutes tastes sweet. And <laughs> they've grown through TikTok and through Instagram because they've co-created content. Mm. They've shipped out free samples, whatever, everything they can do to leverage that community as opposed to trying to create their own ads or trying to create their own e-commerce store. Their, their business is all entirely off of referral. And most brands don't know, ironically, how to create referral-based marketing because they have to co-create content, not just sponsor content. Co-creating means you're creating it together with them. So a podcast is an example of co-created content. That's right. That requires that your, your operations has to be tied together with your marketing team. And most brands don't have the agility to be able to do that. They have a customer care people, they have, you know, support people, they have people on social media, but none of those people are usually empowered to be able to co-create content and take care of that customer. Yeah, I'd just be fascinated in this. Um, yeah, I, I often go and see how many of those hashtags TikTok made me buy it. It would be yeah. fascinating to see how, how, how much e-commerce sales and general sales came, came off that sort of uh, hashtag. We, we, we can't track that yet. By the way, attribution, it's, uh, it, it, it's worse than ever, right? So mainly yeah. about attribution, we, we, can't, uh, we, we can't put our finger on, uh, on it. Uh, Dean, I wanted to, to also ask you uh, about the, uh, the direction where e-commerce is going from, from your perspective not having the crystal ball that uh, Dennis uh, uh, had as well. Yeah, so I think um, I, I think certainly for us, we talked a bit earlier in the show about um, the, the, the marketplaces and, and, and D2C, and, and certainly for us, those will continue to be focuses. I think there are a couple of different platforms and, and specifically on marketplaces, what you're seeing around the world is a focus on um, some of the newer marketplaces being all about 3P fulfillment. Um, so for brands like ours, it's building out the capability to do, do um, fulfillment um, on those marketplaces that we can't sell wholesale to. So that's really one of the focuses for us. And, and I think there's going to be a lot more of that. Um, and a lot more of that ac across the different, different parts of the business. I, th I think some of the other things that we're seeing is a real explosion in retail media networks. 
Um, so any of all of any and all of our omni-channel retailers who can set up a retail media network um, are doing so and spending substantially to do that, as well as quite a few of our omni-channel customers setting up their own marketplaces on their site to offer more assortment. I think one of the more interesting things that, that we're seeing, and it's probably more internal, is, is a shift towards digitizing our enterprise a bit more from the B2B perspective. Um, so there, there's some interesting things. We've been, uh, we've been replatforming a couple of B2B platforms that, that we have. Um, and one of the ones that we've just talked, just done in um, India is we've just launched live streaming on B2B. So I think what, what you are seeing with B2B is sort of a, it, it, it's really merging with the B2C type of environment. And you may say, Dean, well, why, why, why something like live streaming or live commerce in, in, in a B2B environment? Um, but for us, it really makes a, a ton of sense. We launch new products. We've got to communicate that to our distributors. And if you think a country like India, we've got over a thousand distributors. Um, there are different parts of the country. We can't bring them all together. What better way to do that in platform where they can make a purchase on the platform? They can ask questions in the chat from, from the person who's normally one of our staff. Um, and then we can do incentives to place orders and, and drive the distribution down a lot quicker in, in, into those things. So I think that, you know, that's certainly one of the things for me in the next next sort of year or two. I think you're gonna you're, you're gonna see that that speeding up of B2B and, and B2C type technologies. I think people always did see them um, a lot a lot further apart than they are. And then all the other ways to drive more demand on that are also going to sort of merge together. Agree. I, uh, I, uh, I second that and I think it's uh, uh, this type of rigid uh, approach that the brands used to have in a B2B perspective, it's, uh, it's going to become a, a, a thing of the past because it's uh, at the end of the day, it's uh, human to human. It's not uh, business to business or business to consumer. Exactly. And I think, you know, one, one of the ones that we're working on that, which is, is a sort of B2B approach is um, we have a really high-end brand um, based in France called Facome, which um, supplies tools to Airbus. Um, so one of the things about sort of interactive and, and direct engagement there is we're looking at ways of how can we make that brand more engaging from a digital perspective. You can imagine somebody being able to schedule a call or ask a call in real time when he's sitting in the middle of an Airbus engine and saying, how do I use this tool to tighten this bolt or that bolt properly or doing the right thing? Um, you know, that offers huge potential for a brand to drive more direct engagement and loyalty to, towards a brand. So, you know, that's just an interesting use case of how do you use the technology to, to drive a more um, consumer-centric um, business model, really? Consumer-centric, uh, uh, it's uh, uh, it's clear that uh, is one of the directions. So what I've what I've heard from these uh, sessions, for 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 whom I'm uh, grateful that uh, I had you uh, today with us, uh, Dean and Dennis, uh, customer centricity, co-creating uh, content, looking at the uh, at the future and blending the the direction between B two B and B two C. 
what's one question that I haven't been so inspired to, to ask you today, uh, Dean or uh, Dennis, if you have one of these? I, I'm sure that you have plenty of these for sure. <laughs> I have one question. Why aren't more brands on YouTube? And what's preventing them from being on YouTube? Because if we, if we have you know, SEO and PPC as a major channel and bidding on keywords, and those are working really well, YouTube is the second largest social network. And I, don't, I see a lot of sales occurring. I, saw, I see a lot of e-com. But what is, is it because brands don't want to create the content? They see it's too much of a barrier or for the same reason they don't want to do podcasts or they don't want to do on TikTok. But I think YouTube is the sleeper channel for e-com. But the barrier is you have to produce this kind of content. Yeah, as, as, as a brand, Dennis, I'll, I'll answer that. I, th I think it's about perspective, really. I think brands, and, and it's once again, it's a movement that brands need to move from. It's a from to, really, which is brands have got to move from an event-based activity. So I produce a TV commercial for the Super Bowl to always on marketing, which may be a combination of the event-based um, activities. But then there is that stream of constant creation um, because a lot of the, these brands will sort of sit there and, you know, in, in previous roles that I've worked in, we, we'd be working on um, sort of content for next year, December, um, in, in terms of packaging and, and, and all of those kind of things. So it tends, the, 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 the brands tend to have quite a long outlook focused on primarily events. Um, but they need to merge to a sort of pro events plus always on type approach. Yeah, it's uh, uh, the adoption. It's uh, it is it, not there yet. But I I, I guess YouTube. Uh, I've seen a lot of uh, channels making it happen, uh, and they 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 came and they go. But I think YouTube was an uh, uh, let's say. Yeah. It, it, it's a it's a black horse which indeed has this uh, uh, entry barrier, which means being getting more creative. And I think creativity is uh, is the key for 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 future growth. As the attention span is going down, as the uh, expectations are going up, so you can get so I don't know. You can have so much fun by scrolling down right now, and uh, ba basically you are competing with all these uh, all these uh, creators, which. Uh, which are many. You know? There are more, more than ever. You have you yeah. have so many creators over there. I think Valentin also. Where I think a lot of the really big brands and Dennis, Dennis will, will know this. Quite a lot of them sort of outsource some of this content creation. Um, and and I think what you'll see is you'll see a move towards more internal content creation. Um, you know, having your own studio. Um, I was I was in our our. Towson head office a, a couple of months ago, and we are building a live set there. So, um, you know, we, we build up the bricks there and we build up the drywalls, and then we, we can continue to keep on filming them from different angles and break them down and build them up. Um, so having that capability live there is, is, is about, yes, it's about cost optimization, but in, in of itself, that becomes an opportunity for us because it means that we've always got the studio there. We've always got um, something to drill into. And, and, and that flexibility then can, can start building uh, the capability to do more sort of regular stuff that you need for YouTube 
and, and various other channels. So I think as big brands sort of get to the point of saying content creation comes in-house, I think it becomes a huge opportunity for brands to do that because often, you know, going back to the event-based thing, I, I will give it to the, the big grey advertising or, the, or whatever advertising agency. They've got a set brief or a set campaign. That's how they work. Um, whereas this is just, you know, just ready always on. Yeah, it's like a media production. Dennis, we have a question from Julian straight at you. What are the most effective ways you've seen co-creation happen and uh, with what brands? I like Roland, which is a music company. And I happen to meet their CEO, who's, who's so well known. There's a cardboard cutout that people like to take pictures of. And Roland, of course, they sell through all different channels, through distributors. They sell direct to consumer. You can get it on Amazon. But in their studios in L.A., their headquarters, they have an actual music studio. And they invite musicians to come jam out. I remember there, I was over Christmas, and they brought one of the most famous Christmas music musicians. And we got to hang out with this guy, Jim. I forgot his last name. He was from Cleveland. But the ability of Roland to work with musicians and other artists and be a part of the community. And, you know, they'll live stream and they'll give things away and they'll do those typical social media kind of things. But seeing their executives embrace social media, not because they want to be on social media, but because they want to honor their top customers and honor maybe, you know, amateur musicians that they're not trying to become, you know, a platinum recording artist. I think that's absolutely fantastic. And more brands, just like what Dean's talking about, they can live stream, they can have a podcast, they can make their executives more approachable. Uh, look at John Legere of T-Mobile, right? When, when he was the CEO for the last few years, look at how accessible he was. He had a weekly cooking show. He would show that he was making things in his backyard. And, he, and I think he was the number one reason why the brand grew so much in the last few years is they had executives that were accessible. And when the executive approves it, then you don't have all the bureaucracy of the brand police and the PR agency and the media company that says this is exactly where we're going to spend our money according to these channel allocations. You can still do that for brand-created content, but we have to have co-created content and also honor our top customers. And that's something that it falls between the cracks of operations and customer care and community management and you know, the media marketing sorts of teams. It's, it's not really directly owned by any of those, so it falls through the cracks. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Dennis. I like, the, I like how brand police uh, sounds. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I can second that. Uh, with that being said, we, we are uh, about to wrap up. Uh, Dean, if uh, people want to continue the conversation with you and if they want to reach out to you, where they can uh, find you. Um, LinkedIn is the best place to, to find me. Um, I think from, from one of your posts, um, they'll find me there. More than happy to chat. Um, I think uh, I don't have Dennis's um, sort of book yet. I think I'm going to go off and go and, go and buy it there because I think uh, I spend a lot of time on TikTok, probably way too much. Um, I need <laughs> to understand the, the, the commercial side of it rather than the, the, the fun side of it. Perfection. So I'm not going to finish this uh, without uh, uh, promoting a bit uh, our uh, best event. So basically, we are uh, we are going to organize the largest online event 
around customer lifetime value. We have a lot of uh, speakers over there. So mainly if you, if you want to get yourself uh, better at optimizing customer lifetime value, you're, you're invited uh, to register. It's going to be on the 10, 22nd and 23rd of uh, September. Uh, with uh, that, that being said, thanks a lot, Dennis and Dean, and may you have a fantastic weekend uh, and uh, all the best from Bucharest to everyone. Thank you, Dean. Thank you, you Valentin. Thank you. Cheers.